Welcome to Journaling with Nature, the podcast for those who want to turn curiosity into wonder, a pencil sketch into a rabbit hole of discovery, a moment of stillness into a life full of joy. I'm your host, Bethan Burton. Let's open the pages of our nature journals and explore this world together. Hello, this is episode 71. Happy New Year to you! We've started a whole new chapter this week, a whole new year of possibilities. I'm excited for what's to come in 2022. I've got some plans because I think it's nice to have a little bit of structure, but also I try not to hold on to any ideas about how things are going to unfold because you never know what's going to come. I looked at my whiteboard in my workroom where I wrote my professional goals for last year And I realized that I didn't do a single one of the things that were on my list. And yet I was really happy with how the year went because I reached a lot of things that I hadn't planned for and it felt wonderful to achieve them. So let's step into this new year and see what's to come. I'm very excited about sharing today's interview with you. I'm speaking with naturalist, writer and photographer Kelly Brenner. Kelly has written an incredible book called Nature Obscura, A City's Hidden Natural World. And in the book, she explores her home city of Seattle, Washington, with the deep curiosity of a naturalist. I loved this book. Each chapter takes us into a new domain, exploring a new species or habitat within the city. In our conversation, Kelly recounts some stories about the incredible wildlife she shares her city with, as well as ways we can all become backyard naturalists wherever we are. Let's listen. Kelly, thank you so much for being here. I am very, very much looking forward to this conversation. Thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. I always start off going back. And I'm wondering if you could tell me about your connection to nature as a child. Did you have this nature connection with you from the beginning? Yes, definitely. Um, As David Attenborough says, when somebody asks him, when did he gain his sense of, you know, connection to nature? He says, he always says, well, whenever did you lose it? (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, Yeah. I mean, yeah, kids uh, are inherently interested in nature. And I was lucky enough to grow up in, um, a small town, but we spent our summers up in the Columbia River Gorge and way up in the mountains. And so we spent all my childhood, you know, chasing after lizards and salamanders and bugs and things like that. So, so yeah, it's, it's, I've been lucky that it's always been there and I never lost it. So I've yes. been able to retain it throughout my life. That is, that's wonderful. And so then you grew up and you studied landscape architecture. And I'm mm-hmm. interested to know about the progression from studying landscape architecture and how your career progressed from there to being now an urban naturalist and nature writer? Well, I ended up somehow in marketing and I knew that definitely wasn't for me. And (laughs) so um, I went back to school and first I got um, into the community college doing landscape design and I decided I wanted to go further in that. Mm. So I started working um, towards a degree in landscape architecture And during that degree, I took several classes in ecology and I learned a lot about, you know, designing habitat, but um, how things are connected and you you can't just design 
you know, say I want butterflies here. It's like a huge complicated ecosystem. Um, So there's so many components to it. And so I started focusing more and more on how to integrate nature into the cities where a lot of it's been wiped out or, or degraded or sterilized. And so I I really had this big interest in um, even then connecting people to nature in the cities. And so when I graduated, the economy had tanked, that was 2009. And so I started writing a website about those concepts and habitat design and things like that. And I just kept writing and eventually I just started writing and gave up on the whole career of design, which (laughs) worked out. So here I am. (laughs) Here you are. And you've published this amazing book, Nature Obscura. I loved the book. I can't tell you. It's such a wonderful exploration. It's all about the nature you experience in your home city, Seattle. Mm -hmm. And first I'd love for you to describe the title of the book, Nature Obscura. It's it's a reference to camera obscura. I'd love for you to Mm -hmm. talk about that. So I always think that it's hard to read sometimes nature writing because it's that person's exploration. And it's often hard to understand um, if you haven't experienced it yourself. And so I always think that nature especially nature writing is is like a camera obscura so a camera obscura it takes an image like it's it's um a live image so it's just like this old-fashioned camera that rotates and the one i saw was on carngorm mountain in scotland oh and it was just it was rotating on the top of the mountain and it was reflecting in this completely pitch black room on this round circular table the image of the mountain and that made me think that's like nature writing so it's like I was outside experiencing the mountains firsthand, but then I came back in to that room and I saw the camera projecting it onto the flat surface. And it's it's like a whole different perspective and it's representative of the real nature outside, but it's just kind of that weird um, dynamic of of perspectives. And so that's kind of where I got the idea of nature obscura, how it's a reflection of my experiences onto paper, onto a flat surface, but something that people can read and you know, take to their own experiences and go out and have their own time outside. Mm. Tell me about that, about translating something so three-dimensional into words on a page. Your whole um, experience is like Mm multi-sensory. You've got everything going on at once. How do you distill it down? It's, I think my landscape architecture training really helped with that because you have to focus on the big picture, but then you have to narrow it down and focus on the Mm -hmm. tiny little, like either a piece of land or one little piece of it. So learning how to, how to break it down and see the tiny tardigrade that's microscopic in the moss, on the roof, in the city, you know, it's all connected. Um, And I think it, it just takes a lot of practice and a lot of perspectives thinking about the tree and not only in space, but in time, mm. because trees, I mean, l- live for hundreds of years. And so we have a hard time, like that tree is just, it's just, we take it for granted, but it's changing just like everything else. Um, and so the more we think about it, the more we investigate those different perspectives, the tiny, the big, the the long lived, the short lived. So, I mean, some flies only live for a few days. So yeah, I think once you like just dip into little pieces at a time, it starts to build a bigger picture. Yeah. <laughs> When I was reading the book, I thought, Kelly is a professional noticer. (laughs) (laughs) It just kept on coming into my mind. That's your job. Notice things. And the book is all about the things that we might not notice in the city that are going on around us. Things like that you might not even know are happening. And you draw our attention to that, like uh, fungi turning ants into zombies and things like that. 
So a professional noticer notices these things. And, <laughs> and in the book, you you explore a lot of different environments. You're lucky your city has amazing diversity of, of natural spaces. You have the coast, you have city parks, you have the lake. I'd love for you to talk about these different environments and and how you're finding diversity here. It's interesting because Seattle, as with all cities, have changed dramatically. I mean, if you look at historic pictures, it was all forested and, and the landscape has been so dramatically altered. And a lot of um, my early <laughs> explorations were in the very, very urban center um, where I lived. I've moved now to slightly further out, but still in the city. Um, and like, I took a lichen class and our, <laughs> we, we studied lichens in a cemetery. So I started to learn these little, these little nooks that people mm. wouldn't think of as habitat, but that are tucked away, like that can't be touched, like cemeteries, um, rooftops. Um, there's a, a, a bird here that's called a nighthawk. And they used to nest on rooftops a lot. Now they're hardly ever in the cities. But it was because the rooftops used to be constructed with gravel. And that was a okay. perfect habitat for the nighthawk. And then we changed the construction. So now they don't nest here anymore. Um, but there's all these little nooks and crannies that the, the peregrine falcons nest on the bridges. Because it's a perfect replica of a cliff. Mm, and so with nice. our construction of cities, we've destroyed things. But we've also created new habitat that is, um, like in the cemeteries, those tombstones are... Um, kind of a, a replicant of the rocks that would have been in a clearing in a natural mm -hmm. setting. So we've, we've recreated a lot of these different um, habitats. And even though they're man-made and reconstructed, um, there's still a lot to investigate there. But yeah, as you said, we're, we're lucky here in Seattle. We have, unfortunately, most the original landscape is destroyed, but we still have a couple of parks that have the um, little, I mean, it's, it's, seems big now, but it's a pathetic little remnant of the old growth forest. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. And all, almost all the seashore has been altered by seawalls and stuff, but we still have little pockets of habitat. Um, and I always think it's funny when people say that Seattle is so, you know, rich in natural history, but that, <laughs> that, that shows that our perspective has changed. Well, not really yeah. changed. It's just our perspective that, wow, look at all this great stuff we have, but then we, that's normal. All those seawalls are normal. All the lack of seashore is normal to us mm -hmm. now and we fail to see what it used to be like. Um, so writing the book was actually a little bit depressing. Okay, a lot depressing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Knowing what it was like, all the wetlands that used to be here, all the mm -hmm. natural seashore that used to be here, um, which is now very far and few between. Mm. It made me smile when you said that you write you mark in your calendar the lowest tides of the year to be sure not, not to miss a tide pooling opportunity. <laughs> so tide pools in particular, nudibranchs and um, creatures mm -hmm. in the tide pools are very much very dear to your heart. Can you talk about the yeah. amazing things in your tide pools? In fact, tonight I'm going tonight. So winter we have night tides that are low. Oh, wow. And so I'm going actually tonight and tomorrow night to, um, look for nudibranchs. I think tonight's at 10.30 at night and then to, oh, um, wow. Sunday night is at 11.30 at night. So I'll be out there like with a headlamp on and my flashlights <laughs> and everything and my chest waders. And the best place I've found for nudibranchs, very funnily, speaking of um, weird habitats, is under a ferry dock. Okay. It's for some reason, this this, this it's just a normal beachy area, mm -hmm. but it's under the ferry dock. 
and there are sea pens that grow there and they, I haven't seen them grow anywhere else around the, and around the area. And so there's a huge diversity of nudibranchs because they eat the sea pens okay. and because of the pillars, they create some sort of uh, micro habitat. Um, I don't understand all the connections yet, but this, this weird mm. area underneath the ferry dock, um, is where I'll be going tonight in the cold rain. <laughs> that is commitment. 11 p.m. walking around in your waders in the night with a headlamp. <laughs> That's commitment to science. I love it. <laughs> so one of the things that really came through is that, you know, you talked about fragmented landscapes and the way we've altered things. and But one very big group of animals that that live on and thrive are invertebrates and such a diversity of invertebrates in the city. And some of them really struck me and you were talking about diversity of things you might not think about like dip trail at flies. And it reminded me of something that happened to me recently. I was nature journaling and uh, we noticed that there was a little nest on a low branch and we were very excited to see this nest and then the next day we had a massive storm and we came out after the storm and there were two little chicks that had died and fallen from the nest and so I I usually put lovely things in my nature journal flowers and butterflies and stuff and I thought no this is nature you know we need to recognize the cycle of this so I put these two little dead chicks in my nature journal but the thing that struck me about that while I was doing it was the the flies that were visiting these two little dead bodies, there, there was at least six different species of fly there. And it's something that I'd never thought about. You just think uh, a fly, uh, you know, it's something that we don't focus on. But having that moment with these two little dead birds and all this diversity of flies really struck me. I, I'd love to hear that from you about diversity of things we don't usually think about. It's, I, I'm a huge fan of invertebrates. In fact, I'm a little bit anti-mammal <laughs> because they get so much attention and yeah. invertebrates are so vastly looked over. Um, but I love the invertebrates, the, the, the bugs, the, all the creatures in the tide pools. And I mean, all the weird stuff, not like the big megafauna, like the, you know, yeah. sea stars. I was like, Oh, a sea star. I'm like, well, look at all this little, this, this really weird tunicate. It's a sea sport. Yeah. I mean, they're just so interesting. Um, and it's, there's so much opportunity because for one what is 97 percent of all life on earth is or all animal life on earth are invertebrates and most of them haven't been identified like you could be holding in your hand a species that's completely new to science that nobody's ever described before you could identify i mean like for nudibranchs for example everybody knows about them well not everybody but um they're very glamorous and really mm. photogenic and people love nudibranchs. <laughs> but to, today still, we have very little idea of what they actually eat. Mm. A lot of them are very host or um, um, species dependent. Like they'll only eat one species of sponge and they're really bad in captivity because we don't know what they eat. So we can't like, we can't help keep them in aquariums because people, we don't know what they eat. <laughs> um, wow. And so there's still so much to learn about invertebrates. And not only, you know, to mention that we, you know, new species, like if you became an expert in flies, you could probably identify and name new species. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and there's just like, there's a, yeah, huge diversity. Like if you go somewhere in the city, you're not probably going to find bears and cougars mm-hmm. and all the big megafauna, but you are going to find flies or insects you've never even heard of. I mean, I'm still encountering new things. That I, and I'm yeah. doing this all the time. <laughs> and I still find things that I, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> 
Um, so there's just, just so much wonder and, and sense of discovery. And I mean, we're not going to all be, you know, explorers traveling the world anymore, but you can in your own backyard. It's like, there's yeah. a whole world of, of discovery and so much opportunity. Yeah, that is so exciting. And so as part of this exploration, you have your tools, microscopes, you have two microscopes and you go between them, a dissecting microscope, and then you move to the compounding microscope. Mm -hmm. Tell me about this, about looking at nature in with these tools to help you. It started with just a simple hand lens, which is mm -hmm. like, it's a hand loop. So it's like what jewelers use. And it's the simplest little tool that you can fit in your pocket. And it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, okay, I'll get that. And you get it <laughs> and it literally changes your world. Yes, yes. Because <laughs> like looking at lichens under the, under the hand lens mm. or insects or, um, I mean, anything. It's just, <laughs> it, it, it's like literally opens a whole new window to a whole new world. And of course, once you start down that path, then you have to get a microscope. Yes. <laughs> so I got the dissecting microscope because that's better for insects and lichens. And um, I was learning to identify lichens and stuff. And then I got down that route and then I'm like, well, now I have to get <laughs> the compound microscope so I can see, you know, tardigrades up close and, you know, cells and, and spores and <laughs> but it's, you know, it's like my favoriteest thing. I'm writing this new book now about um, naturalist activities. And, and just like the simplest tools make the biggest difference. My other favorite tool is a very simple flashlight. Okay. And if I go out to the forest to look for slime molds, which I do quite a lot, they're tiny, but they're very colorful, but they grow on rotting wood and stuff. And if you just look at it, you'd be like, there's nothing here. But if you get that little flashlight, just a flashlight, nothing special, um, and you shine it on that wood, it's just, it's just mind blowing how much more you can see. And it's, it just seems like so simple. It's just a flashlight, but it changes yes. and it makes so much more visible. Um, it's like the hand lens and the flashlight and just those always in my bag. I always take them. With yes. me. They're my favorite tools and they're simple and cheap <laughs> and <laughs> easy to use. Yeah. Something that everybody could, uh, could access if they wanted mm -hmm. to bring this into their own lives. You mentioned about tardigrades and I have to talk to you about them because they are amazing. And my young son and I have tried to find them. Maybe don't have the right tools, but um, I'd love for you to speak about these amazing little creatures that you can find on your roof and in moss and all these amazing little nooks and crannies that you might not think about. It's funny. When I started reading about them, I thought, well, that's exotic. I mean, they go to space. Yeah. They, they're super durable. And so I, I don't know why, but I was just so shocked to find them on my roof. Like I climbed up through the skylight and I hung out there and I plucked off the moss that's growing on the roof. And like, it's, it's nuts. There's so many tardigrades. And so now I'm like, I'm looking at my garage roof. I'm like, oh, look how much moss is on there. There's got to be like millions of tardigrades. And, and as the moss grows, I get happier and happier. I'm like, it's yes. going to cover the whole Well, a lot soon. of people try to get rid of the moss, don't they? Right. And you're, you're the opposite. You're like, yeah, habitat for tardigrades. <laughs> Every time I see somebody move in and they scrape off the moss and then mm -mm. sprinkle the powder on it to grow to prevent it growing, I'm like, that's the saddest thing doing? ever. You can have no tardigrades now. <laughs> Maybe we should go back and explain exactly what tardigrades are for, for the listener who might not know. <laughs> Tardigrades are one of the coolest invertebrates. So they're microscopic. Yeah. And they their other name is, um, they have a name called moss piglet and then water bear. <laughs> and they, they look like these pudgy naked bears, but they have yeah. eight legs with little, well, kind of long claws. And this funky little face that has um, 
it's called a stylus. So it has like this weird suctiony face. <laughs> <laughs> but they're adorable and and they're super durable. They they've gone up to space and been exposed to the space vacuum and like hundreds and hundreds of degrees and negative hundreds of degrees and they what they do is they um they turn into a ton as T U N and they just kind of shrink in on themselves and they kind of desiccate. And in that in that um state of um suspended animation, they can basically survive anything. Not all of them. There's Number there's a whole lot of species and only if you know a few can do that superstar yes. um, <laughs> survival. Uh, but yeah, but there's like no other creatures that can survive all those things. And yeah, they're kind of. I mean, we think cockroaches are going to survive the end of the world, but it's going to be tardigrades. <laughs> yes, yes, uh, they're so astonishing when you first see a picture of them. That uh, I remember the first time I saw a picture of a tardigrade, and I was. I did a double take, like, well, hang on, what? <laughs> you know, there's lots of weird and wonderful things in the world, but hang on. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's like the best sci-fi authors or, you know, illustrators yes. could come up with something like that, but they're like right up on my roof. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what's amazing about nature. It's just out of this world. Yeah. I hope to see one with my son one day. We'll, we'll get we'll get a more powerful microscope and see what we can find. <laughs> so I'm wondering, so one of my guests, I'm thinking one of my guests, her name is Ivea Moore and she's a botanist working in restoration. And she spent many years getting close to her, her habitats. And, and she said it would be impossible for her to leave her city now because she, she's so close to it. She's developed this, interchange exchange relationship with nature and I'm wondering about that for you do you think it would be impossible for you to leave Seattle now that you know it and love it so well <laughs> I I ask myself that all the time because my other very favorite place in the world is Finland really and I've traveled there a number of times and spent some time well a lot of time out in the you know in the um, parks and then walk wandering around in nature and stuff and I just I love it so much mm. but then they don't have the the shores and the and the nudibranchs, so it's like I need the best of both worlds. So I'm like, how can I spend time in each place? But I also want to visit new places because the more I learn, the more I research and write about, the more now I really want to go to Japan because they're huge in the nudibranchs and they oh, have wow. really amazing nudibranchs just off the um like just by Tokyo. So every yeah, it's just it's just a never ending cycle of yes. <laughs> like I, we're lucky here because we have mountains and ocean. It's hard to find another place that has that sort of diversity and we have I mean the valley and it was just such a diversity of habitat um but I never want to stop exploring I'll, mm. I want to keep you know experiencing new mm. and, and another thing about going to new places is you can compare it's it's really good to learn about other places and landscapes and birds and whatever because that gives you a whole new perspective on what you live with yeah so, that's so true mm. Tell me about the year-long nature exploration challenge you set for yourself. <laughs> so my daughter, um, I put her into a preschool, but it wasn't an everyday preschool. It was a, a preschool, um, a forest preschool. Okay. So she was entirely outside and it was at the Arboretum. And so, and it was only like four hours. So it wasn't really worth, it was just not worth the time for me to take her to school, go home and yes. then come back and pick her up. So I thought, I'm just going to stay here in the Arboretum. And I started wandering around and then I, I'm like, well, there's so much to see. And then the, the year changes and everything. So I decided that I was going to like spend my time documenting 
everything that I could. So then I turned it into a year long, a year long challenge while she was at school. <laughs> um, I would go explore and, you know, find different nature things to look at. And it was challenging because I mean, there's only so much, yes, it's lots of nature. There's only so much you can really observe every day of the week, mm-hmm. every day of the year. Mm-hmm. So it challenged me to look beyond like, okay, well, here's tree bark again. But then I started looking closer. I'm like, oh, here's a, you know, a weird spider web in the tree bark. I wonder what that spider's doing. Oh, here's some something growing on it. I don't even know what it is. So I'm going to take it home and, you know, try and figure out what this thing is and, you know, discover liverworts and all kinds of different things. So it's a really good challenge for making myself look even closer at things that I would otherwise completely overlook. Um, and I'm sure I still do. I mean, there's just, there's just too much to, to see. It's just overwhelming. So picking one thing at a time and kind of really focusing on it each day was um, enlightening. It was really enlightening. And I think it helped train me to do even more observation. Yeah, certainly. And during that year, you came across a delightfully named organism called dog vomit slime mold. (laughs) And it took you down this whole path of discovering slime molds. Can you talk about slime molds and what they are and also this amazing woman scientist, Julielma Lister, that you came across? So so after nudibranch, slime molds are my other very favoritest thing. (laughs) And and I know like scientists find their one thing that they do. Mm. I can't do that because I like everything is so interesting. But at the same time, <laughs> I have these things that I really, really love and I, I love forever. Um, and so and slime molds are so, I mean, vastly overlooked. Nobody knows what they are. They have a really gross name. <laughs> they they're um, they're unrelated to anything else. So they got bounced back and forth. At first, people thought they were animal because they move. They don't mm-hmm. grow like out from a base. They actually move and travel. But then people thought, no, they're more plant-like, so they're plants. No, they're lichens. No, they're mosses. They kind of got bounced around, but now they're like completely independent. <laughs> they're kind of their own little kingdom. Yeah. Of, um, they act a lot like fungi. They are decomposers, so they they you'll find them on rotting and dead material, uh, mostly wood and leaves and things like that. Um, and superficially, they grow like mushrooms. They they kind of have a, a it's similar to mycelium, but it's it's um, it kind of these tendrils grow across the, the wood or whatever. And then they, when they mature, they they grow these um, mature um, forms of either they're like um, orbs on the wood, or they have like little stalks with orbs, and inside of those are the spores, and then they release out into the air and start all over again. But um, th- but unlike mushrooms, they're they're, they're like they're very uh, well not always, but they're very colorful. Sometimes mm. they're iridescent, sometimes they're bright pink or um, bright yellow or orange. And they're really small. Some of them are almost microscopic. It, it takes a huge amount of effort to find them. Um, some are more easy to see, but there's almost nobody that studies them, mm. even today, because they don't do anything for humans. Like we don't. <laughs> them. Yes. They don't offer any benefits to us. They're just there. So there's no there's no funding in that for scientists. So Mm-mm-mm. there's not a lot of people that that study slime molds, but. Um, so yeah, in my research, I kept coming across Miss Lister. Her, she was commonly called Miss Lister. That was, she was very respectful. <laughs> she was British and she was a naturalist and, you know, wrote some books and illustrated about trees and she was a birder and, and, but her father discovered slime molds. I don't know how, but she started studying them with him. And the, these are amateurs, mind you, they're just naturalists. They're not professional scientists, but they were like soon the leading experts in the world on slime molds. 
and they wrote a book <laughs> and the actual scientist um, at the museum at the time was a bit put off because he put he, he'd done his own book but theirs was better <laughs> and so there was a bit of a of a jealousy going on there but she like she <laughs> miss lister corresponded with the emperor of japan who had an interest in slime molds and and i came across some of her specimens in vancouver bc and in the um the university library here in seattle i found a book that she had gifted to somebody like just randomly <laughs> So, I mean, she was all over it. And what I really liked about her, one, was that she was not a professional, what we would mm -hmm, think of mm -hmm. as a professional scientist, but she made a huge difference in the slime mold world. And second, she, and her father too, but they thought that science like that should be shared widely. It shouldn't be sat on, it shouldn't be hoarded. And so they corresponded with people all over the world and they sent them their samples and they received samples in return. And and it was just a very open, welcoming um pair that they they just and I love that because that's that's not very common anymore yes. probably wasn't then either but usually you know science is you know you think about the ivory tower and it's very exclusive and and it's not open um so they were very special in that and, and I really like that and she was one of the first um women uh into the Linnaean uh, society and so yeah she was um and she's pretty much unknown now so it's kind of fun to to get to know her a bit yeah, I love uh, I love when people unearth these stories of like really interesting um, trailblazers and especially that she must have been, you know, science, especially back then was probably very male dominated. And here she is making a mark, writing a book as as uh, as an amateur, not not as a professional, but then sharing that and exposing these amazing creatures to the world. Uh, I love that story. I love that chapter. <laughs> It makes me think, so um, I, I'm thinking about amateur naturalists and citizen scientists, but I have a friend in Canada and sh in Canada they're trying to change this term citizen science to mm -hmm. community science to be more inclusive and I think that's lovely. So I just wanted to say that. But, yeah, citizen science, community science has a really big place in the city, right? I'd love for, to hear you speak about that. Yeah, and I think... So I'm writing this new book about being a naturalist. And I think my my stance is that if you study nature and whether you share it or not, I think you're a naturalist. Yes. And I don't I don't think that it has to have any wider connection to other than because if I was the last person on earth, I'd still be doing this and I'd still call yes. myself a naturalist. <laughs> um but sharing an adult is also very good, as we see, you know, with Miss Lister how but yeah, it's hard because the community science, um, there, there, there's limited doors. Mm. I mean, we have the apps like iNaturalist and things like that, which are used, but, and then there's local groups. But I think, I think the whole thing of like a naturalist is, is kind of overlooked anymore. Mm. People just want to do specific projects, like do a bio blitz for this location or yes. everybody look for this specific organism throughout the region. Um, it's very project driven and it's not, often um it's not communal anymore there's no wider community i mean even with the days of social media now i think there's still a mm -hmm. lack of of those clubs that used to exist um yes. back in the early naturalist days of you know you didn't have to be a scientist and now it's very um science scientist driven like this mm -hmm. is what we're going to do so there's not a lot of room for the for the naturalist to um make their mark or mm -hmm. or even you know study something because especially with you know like getting permits and getting uh, approval to do things and 
yeah, it's just, it's just a very convoluted world now. <laughs> mm -mm. What you said about um, being a naturalist when you're studying nature, you don't need any grand degree or you don't need anything. You just need to study nature. That just reminded me of my own father who is very much a naturalist and he he has his own microscope and he has his own way of just looking at mold on his bread or you know finding something interesting in the compost bin and bringing it up and growing it or hatching eggs that he's found and that 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 idea that you can be fascinated by nature through your whole lifetime and and quietly in your own home study it in this way and learn about it is yeah i I, I love it. I love what my dad does. And I, I think um, that that's important. <laughs> yeah, I think I think there doesn't have to be an end goal. I mean, just curiosity on its own. Yes. I mean, can you imagine David Attenborough just like, well, I'm only going to do this if I can make programs. I mean, he's, yes. that's, it's, it's just part of him. He wouldn't stop doing it no matter what. Yes. Yeah, I just think it's just it's just a part of who you or who you want to be. I mean, anybody could do it. Yes. Yeah. So my next question, you touched on this a little bit already. I'm thinking about um, looking at nature in a cityscape. You see lots of different fragmented uh, landscapes, introduced species, species loss, and you mentioned that about the sort of feeling that comes when you, when you realise this, when you're studying it for the book. There's also, I'm interested also in nature's incredible resilience and adaptability and adapting to the changing conditions that we keep throwing at it. And it, and um, in particular, I'm thinking about this astonishingly quick evolution of the sticklebacks that you, that you documented um, in response to the pollution in Lake Washington. And I'd love for you to talk about that, about nature's resilience and the way adaptation is happening and the way that nature just keeps keeps going keeps changing whatever we throw at it <laughs> i love i love how how um scrappy some of these species are <laughs> like the, like the, the muskrats are like well we don't have any more banks so we're just going to go ahead and borrow your you know boat exhaust <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> i mean it's kind yeah. of ingenious and, and there's there's just like their ad their behavioral adaptations like okay well you took this away from us so we're gonna you know go ahead and do this yeah um, but then there's like the evolutionary changes like the stickleback I, I always think it's funny like along the lake we have um a lot of grass people for picnicking or you know hanging out or whatever <laughs> and that is the absolute ideal habitat for the canada goose okay and and the canada goose they they eat grass they poo they eat grass they poo <laughs> and people don't like the, the the mess on the grass um and so it's like okay but you they we've taken away their habitat yeah we've given them this perfect alternative habitat and now we're upset because we're, they're using it yeah. <laughs> and yeah. they've adapted perfectly to what we've given them and we can't <laughs> complain about it <laughs> Mm -mm. But there, there's so many species that are just like, okay, well, we're just going to go ahead and do this now. And then <laughs> sometimes it works with us, sometimes it doesn't. Um, yeah. But yeah, but then you get to the, to the evolutionary changes, like the stickleback, which <laughs> which they have, sometimes they have plate armor, sometimes they don't. And <laughs> and they, they lost it because they didn't need it. 
and then because of the, the murk and the, the lake was so disgusting it was like all the sewage was dumped into it and this is a big lake like it could take you um an hour to drive around it or oh, several wow. hours to bike around it so it's, it's it's like a number of cities like five or six cities border it so it's not it's not a small lake and it was just full of sewage it was disgusting the visibility was was bad and so the sticklebacks were like yeah we don't need armor anymore <laughs> nobody can eat us because they can't find us and then when they finally started clearing the lake out they stopped the sewage they you know made proper um sewage plans and the sticklebacks like whoa 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 now we can be eaten again <laughs> that's not good for us so they they decided to grow well they didn't decide they, they grew the yeah. armor back so they actually underwent reverse evolution yeah after losing the plates in the first place um all in response to our <laughs> dumping sewage into the lake. <laughs> it's depressing, but it's also astonishing, like that that they can adapt in such a short time, very, very small number yeah. of years in, in terms of evolutionary time. Quite, yeah. It's it's um, one of the fastest evolutions and then reverse evolutions that I think has been documented. But it's just, it's, nobody would even know it's out there. It's just a tiny little fish. Once in a while, they'll wash up because after they mate, they usually die. Okay. Um, and you could find their little, but they're so small. People don't, don't even notice they're there. Um, mm. I found a bunch washed up one time and that made me curious. Like, well, what is, what is this thing? And why are there so many washed up? Is the lake, you know, poisoned or something? Yeah. But it's it's completely natural. And, and the, they're fascinating little fish because the male makes an actual nest under the water. And then the female lays eggs. And and there's, there's some really fun videos of them. But the... Um, Sometimes another female will come in to lay eggs, but then she'll like try to eat the eggs that are already there. Oh, <laughs> the male will chase her out, and it's just like I'm the male, and no wonder he dies because he must be very exhausted after <laughs> going through all that. But um, it's just like all this is happening right outside yes. here, and nobody, everybody we know about the salmon, but not the stickleback because yeah, they don't do anything for us again. It's that whole what you know, what's the point of it? We don't eat it. They don't do anything. So yeah, that's a shame, it? isn't it? Yeah, that science favors things that benefit us and that there's mm -hmm. all this amazing stuff to be investigated. I guess it gives scope for, like you said, like there used to be this unexplored world and people would discover new places and new things and it was this big sort of wild frontier. And now there is its own wild frontier, really, isn't there, when you, you just have to hang out with the less charismatic creatures yeah. no definitely it's like yeah like I, I like that part of being an explorer in your mm. own city or like the backyard mm. or whatever because it's like, yeah it's like there was the other day i was on a walk around the lake and there were just tons of these little fish just swimming all over and everybody just walks by it like but look yeah. look at all these fish what are they i don't know what they are <laughs> i'm gonna take a video and find out but or, or when there's like all these we have these black dancer caddisflies and people just think they're swarms of flies, but they're these beautiful, mm. they have like, these lacy black wings and these really long antenna. And if you watch them, like I take videos <laughs> every year of um, them with my phone in slow motion. Oh, and wow. they're called the Black Dancers and whoever named them did well because they, they look like- That's a romantic name. <laughs> They're just so beautiful. And every day, every year, I'm like, look at, look at all these. And people just walk right through them. And <laughs> <laughs> That's something I love about this community, the nature community, the nature journaling community, that you can have these conversations and be like, yeah, something amazing while everyone else is just going and doing the shopping. <laughs> <or whatever. laughs> the appreciation is there. <laughs> 
I'm interested to talk about you, you, there's a quote from you in the book and it says, I, I learned to pay attention when crows gather because they often lead me to bald eagles and barred owls. And I'm so interested in this. Some species are indicators of other things mm-hmm. and, the, and the crows are good for making a ruckus and letting you know where something interesting might be. I'd love to hear more about that. It, it's it's one of my favorite like parlor tricks like you can really impress people because <laughs> <laughs> like if you if you watch if you're outside just paying attention enough mm-hmm. you learn the baseline like what's normal like this yes. is how a crow acts this is how the coots act this is how the you know the the ducks over here act and so whenever they're acting a little bit different or making a weird call or like when all the coots line up along the lake's edge, I have a pretty good idea that there's an otter nearby because mm. otherwise nothing distracts them from, or if they're like diving really fast, there's probably a bald eagle above them. And so just being out, like nothing, you don't have to like be like with your you know notebook in hand, like, okay, this thing's doing this, but yeah. just like observing and doing it often throughout the year, you, you get to learn that baseline. And yeah, once you learn that baseline, then you can really impress people. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> Let me find oh, something listen, wonderful. I think that, yeah, like the crows are, <laughs> hmm, they're investigating something over there. Let's go see what it is. Oh, look, there's a dead <laughs> bird or a dead fish on the lake's edge. Um, or, oh, oh, they're all clustered around that tree. I bet there's an eagle in there. And people are like, no way. Like, yeah, see, there it is. <laughs> yes, I love that. <laughs> so, it's, I mean, it's, 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 not, it's not complicated. It's, I mean, it's pretty simple. Mm. You just, once you learn what the normal is, you can you know, yeah. find out what's not normal. Yeah. We have some birds here called noisy miners and their name is very indicative of their behavior because they all come together and they're and if you, that's sort of their alarm call together. They, they sort of telling you something's going on here and it's really fun. You can sometimes find a snake. They might be alarming about a snake or um, sometimes you'll find um a tawny frogmouth, which is this incredible bird that has these really big eyes, but it, it's camouflaged like a stick, and um, uh-huh. and you often walk past them because they're so very camouflaged. But sometimes a noisy group of miners will tell will tell you where they are. <laughs> it's very nice that they you know help us find things that we wouldn't see otherwise. But <laughs> I always thank them, like thank you, crows. <laughs> yeah, I love that. One of the coolest passages in the book is your description of watching a dragonfly emerge from and transform into a, its adult form. And, uh, do you know, I really think one of the most fascinating and also horrifying things I've ever sort of heard about in nature is the larvae of a dragonfly. And I remember the first time I saw it in a book, and, again, it was like this moment, like, hang on, are you for real? <laughs> I'd love for you to talk a bit about dragonflies, Odonata and predation and watching this, this dragonfly emerge. This group is astonishing. Uh, I have a secret, I have a not so secret um, fascination with carnage. <laughs> so, carnage. I'm like, oh, dragonflies are total carnage. Yes, yes. <laughs> they, the, the, the larvae are, so, like you said, they're so weird. They're just like yeah. squat and they have these weird bulbous eyes and... The weirdest thing are, the, are is their jaw. 
Yeah. Because it looks like normal, like when you see them, but then when they see prey, it just shoots out like a trap yes. door sort of thing. <laughs> and they just, and it's like these meat hooks at the ends of their jaw, and it just like grabs the thing and brings it back, and they just chomp down on it. It's horrifying, <laughs> but also like amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. I like, you, you think about all the documentaries about cheetahs and lions and yeah. stuff, but no, like, Somebody's got to do one on the dragonfly larva. <laughs> Absolutely. It's like like you said before about science fiction um, illustrators yeah. or something. It's like this disgusting grabbing arm thing that comes out in. But it's so cool. I love that you that you love that and that you've seen that you've seen these creatures. And what about the emerging the emerging that, dragonfly? It's so weird. So it, it's it's hard to describe to people because they like they're familiar with like an egg hatching or a butterfly coming out of a chrysalis but to describe the larva and the adult like it doesn't sit there and and you know it's like stew in a cocoon it at some point in time the adult dragonfly grows inside the larva like it doesn't have this transformation period it just it just happens and then by the time it's coming out of the water the adult is already inside it still has a larval form but the adults all squished up inside this little <laughs> case. And it's just the weirdest thing. And it starts to, and its back splits open. This is so sci-fi. And the adult <laughs> like starts to like creep out of the back. Like it's it's like the, its back gets pulled out. And then its head pops out. And it's very slow motion. It's, it doesn't happen yeah. fast. And then it's like it's pulsating because it's starting to to use fluid to pump up its adult body because it's been shrunken yeah. down. And the wings start to, they're like all curled up like little brains. <laughs> and then eventually like the whole body comes out of this. It's like a magic trick, you know, it's like this whole big body. And then slowly it starts to um, inflate, like it pulses, like a brain pulsing. And it's, it's um, the adult dragonflies are usually just kind of like whitish or beige. They're, they're not very colorful. And then slowly as they mature um, and harden, their skin hardens and they finally get their mm. color. But it's just this like this dragonfly emerging. Oh, and it comes out at first. It comes out upside down. Like it comes out oh. the back comes out, and then it flops over. Its head kind of flops over backwards, and then it, when it pulls its abdomen out, it like flops back up. It grabs onto the whatever it's you know the larva has been attached to. And I, I've I've I made my pond in my backyard, and and then they come out every year now. So I'm always out there, <laughs> like photographing them and chasing away the juncos. Yeah. The juncos like to eat them because they're very soft when they first emerge. Oh yes. <laughs> um, so <laughs> I go to war with the birds at that point. <laughs> <laughs> Protect the dragonflies. It's quite a quite a privilege to have seen that actual process, right? Yeah, it's, and I've seen it now in my pond, but I've seen um, the damselflies at the arboretum because they would come out during the middle of the day and they're much faster because they're small. But there would just be like like 10 of them lined up on the on the stone wall. And just like when you get down and look at them up close, it's, yeah, it's like that whole alien. I show people pictures of it and they're like, yeah. holy, what the heck is that? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like, like it's that. Right when I- <laughs> It's like literally right down to your feet. (laughs) This is the thing. All these wild things that are going on that we don't know until we read a book like yours or start doing this. Start observing. Start being start being curious and and looking down instead of looking at our phones. Get down. Like I I don't I have actual knee pads now because I spent so much time crawling around. (laughs) (laughs) I started doing dock fouling, so I go to a, a floating dock. 
And I lay down and hang over the edge to look for nudibranchs or whatever sea life is over there. And I kept getting such massively bruised knees. <laughs> so now my new favorite tool is my knee pads. <laughs> that, that's, that's cool. You've got the coolest job in the world, seriously. <laughs> this, this, this conversation is reminding me of um, one day I went out and I was with my father who he and I and my son we go out into the backyard and we just look around and see what we can see and one day we came across this little um chrysalis well we saw something shiny and it was this chrysalis of a, a common crow butterfly and it was metallic it's it's gold and silver metallic it, it's so beautiful like a jewel and I'd never seen one in in the flesh before and I snipped off the branch it was on and I took it inside so we could observe it. And then it took so long. It, I had it there and I'd look at it every day and I was thinking, oh, I'm a terrible person. I've, <laughs> I've you know, I've altered this butterfly's life cycle. It's going to die. I, I was feeling really guilty about it. And then one day I came and I looked in the box and it had turned black. And again, I was devastated. Oh, I've killed this thing. And then I realized, no, 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 it's, it's black because the butterfly, it's no longer gold because the butterfly is coming. Mm -hmm. And the black was actually the wings that I could see and the, mm -hmm. and the, the chrysalis was getting thinner, I guess, and I could see the patterns in, in, through the chrysalis. And oh, that moment, I know you've had this before, but that moment where you're just like something incredible is happening yeah. right now. And I spent that entire day waiting and I just knew it was coming. And so I spent the whole day photographing and drawing in my nature journal. It was one of the most exciting things I've ever seen. And then towards the end of the day, it, it was coming. It was real. And my family's racing around calling each other and come and see, it's coming. And then, and then the butterfly, like, slipped out and it was first of all it was just so moving and I've just felt so lucky to see this moment and then the butterfly's wings you know things I hadn't thought about before but they were all like you said all shriveled and um and I thought oh it's damaged and but then I watched it over the next few minutes and it like you said pumped up and yeah. the wings expanded and then it was just this beautiful perfect butterfly and that process, that that miracle moment, I felt so happy and excited to have seen it. It was one of the things I will remember for the rest of my life. It was it was so special. It's like, mm -hmm. Yeah, those moments are they're, they're just they're magic. I mean, there's no magic. Science doesn't come into it. It's just it's magic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you you mentioned that you have dabbled in nature journaling and I'd love for you to talk about your experience with journaling and making art of nature and and even your experience of what you're creating now. <laughs> um, so I, I was forced to become an artist because in landscape architecture school you have to draw and your designs um, and I've, I've always liked to draw I just haven't ever been very good at it and so I, I suffered through landscape architecture school <laughs> and then when I started writing my website, I'm like, okay, I should, you know, work on my nature journal. And I wasn't ever very um, regular about it. I, I, I do a lot more photography, but then I started getting into the nudibranchs. So I started a nudibranch journal. I wanted to keep track of all the nudibranchs I'd seen and where I'd seen them and everything. So I started working on that. And then for my website, I was writing a lot, but I didn't always have photos of the things I wanted to write about. 
And so I was like, I'm just going to try drawing it. <laughs> and so I started sketching and watercoloring and doing a bit more and more. And then my publisher saw some of the um, articles I've been writing and she said, you know what, that would make a really good book. And <laughs> in fact, I wanted to do the art for it too. I was yes. like, what? Because I, I was just like dabbling and I never even <laughs> considered myself like, an artist. So um, it's been an adventure in this book, but it's been so much fun because writing can get very tedious <laughs> and challenging, but having yeah. to like each chapter I, I research, I write, and then I get to do the art. Yeah. And it's such a fun um, system to, to include the artwork in it. Mm. And of course, now that I have to do so much, so much art, it's becoming a lot better. <laughs> um, and so I've been able to play with it instead of just like drawing from a photo that I took. Yeah. Now I'm kind of compiling pictures together. And like I did a picture of an open book with plants growing out of it. And it's just it's just been so much fun to and that inspired more to do you know work on my new to brain journal and um start doing more and more um it's just it's just that learning curve like once you get comfortable with it it's yeah it's so um scary to mess up in in an actual book like yes so so I'm learning now to to just go with it and you know make the best of it and it Mm. is what it is um do you feel like your you know your writing is is one layer and then when you're investigating a creature with paintbrush and paints mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you you layer on another layer and learn something new about oh always yeah there's there's so much um there was a book I read um Crow Planet by Landolin Hout and in it she talks about sketching uh, a crow feather or, or maybe it was a dead crow and how much you can gain from it and I, I always took that heart to heart Mm-hmm. And yet every time I sketch something, even if it's something I'm really familiar with, a nudibranch, there's so much more I notice about it by by having to sketch it that I wouldn't yeah. notice just taking a photograph or even just studying it and hanging out with it for an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, every time I sit down to actually draw it and I notice so many more details about it and like, oh, there's these weird veins. Oh, they like, you can see this body. It's like organs through the body. And um, it's like, the color is weird. How come the color looks like this on this one? And this one, it's actually like pinkish and wonder why that is and yeah there's just it's one of the best tools to actually like learning more about an individual species or um organism yeah <laughs> it's, it's yeah like with a microscope and flashlight that's a sketchbook or you know watercolor whoever however you want to do it um i'm yeah I do watercolor but yeah that's a, a really amazing tool mm-hmm. so in the book you talked about watching a spider web when you were seven years old and you described it to your mother as a miracle. And your mom had the typical grown-up response to say, well, it's just a spider. And so we're like we said in the beginning, we're all born with this incredible fascination. And then something happens over time and we and we lose that sense of wonder. And clearly you never lost, never lost it. And I'm wondering about how how you maintained it, how we can maintain it as we go older. And also, are you actively doing things with your own daughter to help her not lose that sense of wonder? I'm, I'm thinking about that, how, how we retain it. I, it's so hard because society is so unforgiving. And if you are going to go crawl around in the mud looking for slime mold, <laughs> or if you're going to like spend an hour looking at a fly on, you know, poo, <laughs> You know, people, people aren't going to want to hang out with you. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I speak from experience. 
it's like they just want to go to the bar and hang out and i'm like I, how about if we go next door to the cemetery and look at slight i mean you know look at lichens instead um but you know it's hard it's hard to pretend because i definitely went through a period you know in my teens when i was like oh, nature burning no i don't yeah. i don't do burning. Yeah. i don't know what that bird is what are you talking about um but for me it's like it's always been my refuge because i um I get a sensory overload. I get really stressed. Um, and like the human world causes me a lot of stress, a lot of grief, yeah. um, whether it's the noise or just people and interactions. Mm-hmm. And so that's just like what I fall back to. It's just my default now. Well, it always has been, but it's like, there's a tree, there's a forest. Like I'm going to go, I'm going to go out. I got to get away from like the, the, the yeah. cars and the, and the streets and everything. Um, and so for me, it was like, it's pretty much like, um, life-saving I mean I have I have to Hmm. um but yeah like for my daughter I I definitely take her I we she gets bored easily because she's nine yeah (laughs) but she she loves what I love so she she finds fascination she um stands up for the bugs like at school when they're at the park she's like don't step on the spider no here let's put it over there so she's she's like a nature (laughs) defender and um and yeah so I mean I, I know we talked to talk a lot about you know like liking what you like and not caring what other people say and mm. <laughs> but it's yeah the world's harsh so <laughs> it's hard to to be the weirdo <laughs> <laughs> I love though that now that we're connected with the internet we have all these different ways of communicating you can find other weirdos very easily <laughs> yeah that's until until I got onto Twitter I I didn't know hardly any other weirdos and now I have <laughs> A bunch of internet, I mean, invertebrate weirdos that like yeah. we text all the time. It's like, I saw this really cool nudibranch. You won't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> and then they get as excited as you do. So it's, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> like there's other weirdos out there. <laughs> yeah, totally. Finding community makes all the difference. And to, to have people who love what you love, no matter how esoteric and um, slimy or <laughs> small or whatever. <laughs> There's someone else out there who you can talk to, and that's really uh-huh. cool. <laughs> and it's it's nice having written the book because I hear from people. Like even when I'm out yeah. looking for nudibranchs, like this person is like, "Are you Kelly Brenner?" I'm like, "No, yes." <laughs> like I read your book, I loved it. I'm like, "How did you know who I was?" <laughs> that is amazing. <laughs> but it's nice. Like people, a lot of people will say, you know, "Oh, I didn't even know about tardigrades or slime molds," but now I really love them. They're awesome. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Oh, um, in the book you mention, uh, and it struck me because of an experience I had. But you said you mentioned tidiness in managed spaces, and it and it struck me. I I remembered this phrase because of something that had happened to me recently. I was out nature journaling, and I had this idea that I was going to do the daily walk that I do, which is a local walk near my house, and it had a lot of flowers coming up and I was going to nature journal this whole route and all the flowers that I saw and I started and then I had to come home and then I thought I'll do it the next day and I went the next day and the council had come and flattened it they'd mowed my flowers down and I had this moment of like no we need to let let the flowers grow (laughs) and I'm wondering for you about um you know you have this sort of landscape architecture lens and I'm wondering if what your thoughts on managed spaces and if and how to 
make spaces more friendly for biodiversity mm -hmm. and whether we need to be a bit more untidy in our cities and and that sort of idea i always tell people the best thing you can do is to be a lazy gardener yeah. <laughs> because leaves are perfect habitat for so many overwintering um invertebrates and, and soil mm -hmm. invertebrates um pesticides are terrible um and yeah, like just like letting your garden be a little bit wild. Don't mow it all the time. Let the flowers and the weeds grow. Let the backyard, you know, be a little bit wild and disorganized because that's the best habitat. Yes. And, and I know we need space for, you know, like people to have picnics or play Frisbee and that's fine. Um, but there's so many other spaces, like all those goose pooped areas that <laughs> people don't hang out with. We just like that vista of the lake that we could easily, you know, plant a ground cover or something like that mm -hmm. instead. And then it wouldn't need to be mowed. And I don't know why cities are so obsessed with mowing and <laughs> mowing and leaf blowing and then mowing some more <laughs> because it, it just takes, I mean, for one, it's noisy. Nobody wants to listen to that. For two, it's um, wholly unnecessary and uses so many resources, you know, people, yes. power, people time and, um, and our natural resources. And I don't, I'm like, it's just, it's so much easier and so much cheaper to just let things be. We don't need to, to, to chip up all the leaves that we rake up. Um, I just, every time this, this time of the year, cause it's autumn here, it's just like, stop blowing those leaves. Stop mulching everything. Just <laughs> You're yes. killing everything. Don't rake the moss off the roof. Just let it grow. It's not hurting anything. And, uh, um, yeah, I mean, it's hard to find that balance because we also have invasive species yes. that have to be managed. Otherwise, they get yes. out of control, like blackberries and reed canary grass and whatnot. Um, and so it's, it's, it's a fine balance. But there's so many ways that the cities could save time and money yes. <laughs> by re-landscaping areas or just letting certain areas be. Um, let them grow with weeds. Let them grow with the wildflowers. Um yeah, I see that on on UK, like the um, mm. Twitter people all, always posting about how they mow the verges and destroy all the. It's a really important bee habitat and yes. invertebrate habitat, and it's wholly unnecessary. <laughs> it's not like it's going to grow up high enough to obstruct the driver's view of their flowers. <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, but people just have, for some reason, been trained to think that that is messy and it's untidy, and it just shows that it's not being taken care of. So it's hard and it's, it's a long process to convince people that, hey, you know, the leaves in the yard are actually good. I mean, it's fun. It's better than looking at a mud pit <laughs> this time yeah. of the year. Yeah. Um, and so I've got signs up all over my yard. It says pollinator habitat, no pesticides. This is a habitat, um, um, like I have a um, certified landscape habitat. Oh, wow. So I've got signs up all over the place so people mm. know. And my neighbors all like, oh, okay. <laughs> That's wonderful to to let people know that you can do it like this. You mm -hmm. don't have to have it manicured. It re just speaking now, it reminds me of this neighbor we used to have when I was younger and he had a deciduous tree right in the middle of his front lawn. And every day he would go out there and like sweep up all the leaves. And I was thinking, what are you doing? You're, you're wasting energy. <laughs> not, not, not just wasting energy, but like you're clearing away habitat, but like, why are you doing that? You were, your you, your time could be better spent <laughs> <laughs> i yeah it's just th there's a lot of um psychological study behind why we mm. have that obsession with lawns and stuff but um i won't go into that but yeah it's just this weird obsession with like mm. pristine lawns I, I my neighbor across the street has the same way 
nothing must lay on the lawn and it must be trimmed. <laughs> Even now in the in winter time, she has it mowed once a week. It's like, wild. It's not it? growing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like people fear being judged, you know, for the inside of their home. You know, we like to have our homes tidy. Um, maybe that extends to the lawn. They think they'll be judged or something. I don't. I don't know. But I, just, I love that you. Yeah, it's just it's it's easier. It's you can be lazy, and it's really good for habitat. You're saving yeah. the wild bees by letting your leaves there. Just let them lie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if they're in the storm drain, of course, rake them out. But yes. if they're just a, and, and you can you know rake them into the edges too. You can rake them into the flower beds. Yeah. They actually, it's really good for the flower beds because it helps retain moisture throughout the year. And then it also protects it from um, frost, the flowers and stuff. So it's actually really good. It's, it's beneficial to leave the leaves and, and weeds and like the, the um, seeds, you know, don't deadhead at the end of the year, let the seeds. Because yes. now my yard's full of sparrows who are all, you know, eating all the, the um, goldenrod seeds. And like, I don't have any feeders up, but I still have lots of birds in the yard because I just let it go wild. <laughs> Yeah, that's beautiful. In fact, here in Australia, bird feeders are not a thing. Well, some people do, obviously, but I find from conversing with people in North America that bird feeders are very common. And here, mm. um, maybe it's more common to plant a garden to, mm. that attracts birds. And I think that that's more, uh, in my worldview, like um, – the more we can do that, the better than yeah. putting out some seed that may or may not be there next time because you go on holiday or whatever, whatever. The yeah. Thing is. Well, and not only that, but the feeders are a horrible spreading disease. Mm. There's always big outbreaks, um, especially on the West coast here um, of, from bird feeders. And we know we're supposed to clean them, but people don't clean them as often yeah. as they should Yes. or as well as they should. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's easy. It's cheap thrills to feed the birds with a, a mm. you know, bird feeder. <laughs> And it's much harder work to plant all the native plants and wait yes. for them to grow. But it's much better for the birds. And it's not only the birds, because if you plant a plant, you're going to also benefit the bees and the flies and all yes. the other invertebrates that hide in it. And so it's like, it's, it's, just, it's so much better um, to plant native plants and, and yes. have a garden with, you know, water source and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that your final chapter was about how the reader can bring this into their own lives. And I think this is a really important step and you, you beautifully detail all the different um, things that people can do to begin to, to become a backyard naturalist, become an urban naturalist. And I wonder if you could just um, speak a little on that about, about what, what next, what can people do to start <laughs> opening their eyes and, and bringing this into their lives? Well, I like best about being a naturalist is that you don't have to have a degree. There's no gatekeeping. There's nothing preventing you from going outside. Anybody can do it. You don't have to have any special tools. Like I said, my favorite tools are, are a hand lens and a, and a, mic, and a um, flashlight. So it's not like you even need any sort of fancy um, tools. And so it's open to anybody. You can and, and you don't have to be out into the wilderness. You can be out in a backyard or in the city, looking at a sidewalk. I mean, anywhere you're going to find nature. Um, and, and, and I always go back to um, Sherlock Holmes, you know, like just observing and noticing, not just like <laughs> that you're walking down a street and not getting hit by a car, but yeah. notice like get down and you notice the ants that are having, yes. you know, a war on the sidewalk or noticing, you know, the different kinds of bark on a tree or the, the when the leaves come out on your backyard tree. Um, it's all about observation and teaching yourself to really look and see and 
and then that have that curiosity. It's like, okay, well, there's a tree in my front yard, but what kind is it? And then you figure out what kind it is. And then you can figure out you're like, well, when do the leaves fall? What eats it? What, what, what's made the holes in the, in the leaves? Um, and there's just, there's just an endless number of questions. And it's so easy now to find the answers because mm. I mean, there's tons of books for one. And then that you, there's so, so much access now directly to scientists, like on Twitter or Instagram. And so many of them will just answer your question. Like I, I'll find a weird insect in my backyard and I'll say, anybody know what this is? And yeah. then 10 people say, oh, it's this, this, this thing. <laughs> and then there's, um, you know, like things like bug guide, which you can put up an insect and just say, I don't know what this is. And an expert will identify it sometimes within like 10 minutes. And so it's, it's easy now. I mean, it's easy to, to be a naturalist and be connected and just get outside and observe and everything. So yeah, my next book is, um, goes further into that it's it's going to be a collection of 20 naturalist activities oh um, wow and a lot of them are like science techniques but the, all of them are very simple like with household materials or things you don't need a whole lot of tools for the only thing that comes up that's a bit more expensive is a microscope um but yeah so it's going to be a whole collection of and hopefully things that will be you know relevant throughout the entire world not just seattle so like things like how to find tardigrades. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so I'm excited. Yeah, it's going to be fun to to get that out. <laughs> oh, I can't wait for that. And congratulations on Nature Obscura. It's it's an amazing book and I thoroughly, thoroughly recommend it. It's such a good one. Thank you. I'm so happy. <laughs> Kelly, thank you for being here with me. It's been amazing to dig into all of this and to, yeah, to chat about the wonders that can be found really, really close to home. Thank you for being a guest on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Kelly. After reading Nature Obscura, I was so inspired to go out and lie in the grass and watch and listen and experience all the things around me in my backyard. I love that Kelly spends so much time investigating the micro worlds within her city that she invested in some knee pads to protect her overworked knees. This made me smile so much. If you want to read Kelly's book, you can buy a signed copy directly from her website and the link is in the show notes for this episode. I highly recommend this book and it will definitely spark you to get out and crawl around on the ground or on your own roof looking for tardigrades. Thank you so much for listening. See you next week.